our services are typically um, not interactive, but this morning, I want everybody to say the phrase, by grace. Just say it, by grace. grace. Say it again, one more time, by grace. All right. When we think of salvation, that needs to be the very first thing that comes to our mind. We've heard it, we've prayed it this morning, we've read it from the scripture already. We've sung it in our hymns of praise this morning. By grace, by grace, by grace, by grace. See, a lot of times in the world, we see all sorts and all manner of gospels, false gospels, fake gospels, partial gospels, almost true gospels. Well, if something's almost true, it's wrong. If it's almost right, it's wrong. If it's almost deadly, it's and if it's almost edible, it's nasty. Or You know, if, if it's almost, it's not. And we don't need to emphasize so much what the Scripture doesn't emphasize. We need to focus on what the Scripture teaches us. And the, t- the Scripture will show us error, and the Scripture will show us truth. But predominantly, the Scripture teaches us truth. Proclaiming the truth. Proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming what God is, and what God does, and who God is, and what redemption is. So, I mean, how often do we even dabble in the idea that, you know, redemption is eternal life, redemption is salvation? All these things are grace. And Paul, writing to Timothy, of course, I turned to John 3 for some strange reason, but Paul, writing to Timothy, has written a letter, as we spoke last week, a very intimate letter. Because Paul's relationship with with Timothy was unlike any other relationship. Sort of like Jesus' relationship with John. Maybe that's why I turned there. And Timothy was a protege, was a mentee, was a son in the faith. Someone whom Paul took great interest in spiritually and personally. And he spent a lot of time with him. And we know that because we see the writings of Paul and we see Acts and we see where Timothy was always there. He was always in the shadows of Paul's teaching. And he sent Timothy into different places as a messenger to send his letters. He requested Timothy to come back to him and to bring John Mark, as we'll see in the second epistle. And he was important to the ministry of Paul, but most importantly, he was important to the gospel. And more important than that, he was important to the church of Ephesus. And more important than that, his teaching. What teaching? The teaching that Paul gave Timothy. You notice Timothy didn't write any letters. Timothy didn't leave any sermons. Because what he was called to do and the people for whom he was called, they know more. Yet Paul as an apostle, the letters and the instructions that he wrote Timothy are important for the church. They're important for the church for us to see and to sit and to savor all of these truths so that we may worship in spirit and in truth, that we may understand the Lord, that we may grow in our understanding, that we may learn things that we may not know about Him. Because believe it or not, learning is a process. Divine revelation is a process. You just don't wake up and have all knowledge. You don't wake up and have all understanding. You don't wake up one morning. You don't come to the knowledge of the truth and go, Wow, by the Spirit of God, I can sit and rest in the sufficiency of Christ's work for me. And then the next day you wake up a theologian. It doesn't work. It's not possible, beloved. God will not do that. 
He does not do that. He did not do it for Paul. He did not do it for the other apostles. He did not do it for Timothy. He sent Paul to Timothy to teach him. Timothy to the other elders of the other churches in Ephesus to teach them. And they taught the church. And as God called more men to the eldership, then they taught others and taught others and taught others. If you'll notice, evangelism as as we know it in our world is not really prominent in the first century, is it? What is prominent? Evangelism unto church planning to establish the body of Christ under the headship of the Lord in order for it to be organized and administrated in such a way that it would work and live and love and breathe and exercise faith and grow as a people by the grace of God for the display of His own face and name, glory. We have this letter and and I want you to learn a little bit of how I read and and sit on scripture as we go through some of these letters. As we talked last week, let's just read the first two verses again of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord to you. This is the introduction to this letter. This is the greeting. And there's words there. And there are words words there that we take for granted. Language is a living thing. Language changes. Understanding changes. Meaning changes. Pronunciation changes. For example, the word gospel. Where do we get that? We just take it for granted. The gospel. Gospel is written in our English Bibles. It's on our lips. It's all over the place. Every cult in the country uses the word gospel if it's Christocentric in any kind of, in any kind of historical sense. Any cult that uses the text of Scripture uses the word gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Oh, it means good news, but how would you know that? If you picked up a Bible in the ditch somewhere in the woods and you saw the word gospel, how would you know it meant good news? I'll tell you how you know. You'd know it meant good news based on the context. You might even start calling it good news. Well, the original thing, the, 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 the evangel, literally translate to good report. The good report. Hear ye, hear ye, have a report here. Here's our CPI data for the month, our consumer price index, something that I actually look at. Jobs reports, things like that. Weather reports. You know, we all look at reports. Sports headlines, some of us look at. Some of us like to look at politics. I don't know why, but you like to do it so well. It's your brain. Some of us just like to look. We don't look at the newspaper and sit there and and are trying to be convinced of something. We read the report. Well, the gospel literally means the good report of the finished work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Son of the living God. And of course... All that's not inclusive in the word because the word good report comes about anything. It was a very common word, just like the word good report. Did you get a good report from the doctor? Did you get a good report from school? Did you get a good report from your counseling session? Did you get a good report here? Did you get a good report there? Did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? It's common. Just like the word ecclesia, which means assembly. It was never used in the context of people gathering together to worship Jesus until the first century. It was never ever used ever in that context. It meant gathering most of the time political. So when someone would say ecclesia 
or as we would wrongly transliterate the word church from Ecclesia, it's wrong. That doesn't even make sense. It's two different distinct things. But nobody would say, oh, I've got a business meeting today. Uh, I've got to go to church. Where are you going? I'm going to church. But that's what it means. I'm going to assemble. And it, was not, it is not a spiritual word. It is not a Christian word. The word church is not a Christian word. The word assembly is not a Christian word. But Christians assembled in the first century, so the people began to call it the assembly of the saints or the assembly of the Christians, which was a pejorative term. It was a term to mock them. Oh, little Christ followers. Oh, look at those little Christ followers. People trying to be like Christ. Trying to be like Christ. And... Yet we take these words and we just go, this is truth. But we don't know what we're talking about. We don't know what we're talking about. And the same is true with the word love. I've talked about the word love. The word love, we use the the word love equivocally with all sorts of things. I love pizza. I love sports. I love good weather. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dog. I love my cat. I love my fish. And so on and so forth. Oh, I love the Lord Jesus and he loves me. Does Jesus love my fish? Does Jesus love pizza? See how weak language has become? And then you got to hire critics. Well, there's different types of Greek words that mean the same thing, and you got to know what the Greek word is. You don't have to know what the Greek word is. But we do need to recognize, beloved, that we have a watered-down sense of vocabulary when it comes to the Bible. And that vocabulary, believe it or not, was taught to all of us by someone else in some way. And when we misuse terms in front of each other, We don't have the right to subject our ideas or opinions against the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so when Paul writes a letter and he says, Jesus Christ, he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the command, you know what that means? He had no choice. It was not his decision. It was not something he sat around and thought, hmm... You know, I see these apostles going through mortal exhaustion and suffering, and imprisonment, beating, hatred, loss of family, loss of life, loss of income. Sounds like a career move. If you, if you interviewed for a job and, 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 and they said, yeah, well, we want you to work seven days a week, one day off a year, and we're going to pay you nothing. Sign me up! Nobody signs up for that. That is the ministry, Okay? That is the gospel ministry. That is the apostolic ministry for Paul. That was, that, was the, that was what he signed up for. He didn't sign up for it. God commanded him to see him by blinding him physically, spiritually giving him sight, and then send him into the world. Not to be this evangelist to tell people about the offer of salvation. There's no such thing in Scripture. Salvation is the report. The gospel is the good report of the finished work of Jesus. I don't know when the first time I said what I'm about to say, but I have been saying it as long as I can remember, which short-term memory, I don't know. But Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. He died in order to make it certain. I want you to hear that again. Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. He died to make it certain. Now, remember the first season in which I said that to a crowd and I saw mouths go open. And after that service, I don't even think I was on the West Coast yet, but after that service, I had a little crowd wanting to talk about that. Because that wasn't, that wasn't a misspeak in their sense. That was a, that was a theological error. 
And you know what? Those people never saw it. They never saw that the good report of the gospel, the good report of Christ was a finished work of salvation. They were taught that they had come to their senses and reasoned well enough to understand that the story of Jesus was good enough in their mind for their salvation. So they accepted it as true and God saw their acceptance and went, Lo and behold, Johnny Boy just got right with me and now I'm going to forgive him. The death of Christ forgives us. We're justified by the death of Christ. We're justified by believing in the death of Christ. We're justified because of God's electing, loving grace. So there's a lot we could talk about. I mean, literally, I could spend months in these first two services. And I might. I'm just going to let the Lord lead me, and we're going to teach some theology over the next few weeks. And what is the theology? It's a science. Theology is a science. And it's probably the worst science in the world. Because I am subject to its object, not the other way around. As a researcher, subject matter, I get to be the expert. Read everything, read everything, read everything, decide who's right or wrong based on where I think I'm heading with it. I mean, don't think research isn't twisted. I mean, I've had academic mentors who've stood me to the side and said, just, just go ahead and get your premise down and search for the things that succeed, I mean, that, that agree with it. I mean, you know, you think nine out of ten dentists really pick crests? Let's get a thousand dentists. When you got nine that say crest, get one of those oddballs over there and throw them in the book. Look, nine out of ten. I mean, you can make, work, you can make it work. But theology is a science in which the learner is subject to its object, is subject as a subordinate to the Lord. And we can learn all we want to learn and we can know all the data and the information that we can stuff into our cerebral tissues. But beloved, until the Lord God Himself opens our hearts and minds to the truth of the knowledge, we will never rest in Him. We may know how to get from here to Tokyo on a map. Beloved, I promise you, I promise you, you can't make that trek on foot. We're not going to make theological treks in our own brains, in our own ability to learn. But beloved, we should be learning. We should be reading the Word. We should be listening. We should be paying attention. We should be questioning. We should be asking. We should be discussing. We should be talking. But above all of that, we should be rejoicing and resting and worshiping. And all of that includes serving one another and being patient with one another and being long-suffering and being kind. God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our hope. How is it that we can call Jesus Christ our God and our hope and our Savior? How is it that Timothy could so confidently write about the assurance of this salvation? What is the assurance of salvation? Beloved, it is the blood of Christ. It's why we take the Lord's table. To remember the blood of Christ, the payment for our redemption, the purchasing power for His people. He bought a people, and those people were bought when He said it was finished. And there is no return policy. There is no, there is no recall. We are His, 
and nothing can separate us from His love. And we're going to be in some Romans 8 in the next few weeks. We're going to be, we're going to be all over the place. You have to forgive me. I'm going to be scatterbrained. But look at these things. Look at the greeting here. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, and these three things that he uses in his greetings, grace, mercy, and peace. Now, it's very typical for Paul to start his letters with grace and peace. And then he says, to you, and at the end of his letters, he often rephrases it this way, grace and peace be with you. In 2 Timothy, the construction of 2 Timothy is so uh, biblical. <laughs> I know that seems silly to say, but it's, it undergirds the idea of the authority of Scripture or the historical moniker of sola scriptura in such a way that it, it, it establishes everything. I'm going to tell you this. Everything God has ever said about His Word being true in the prophets, 2 Timothy really just takes that and compresses it into a diamond, into a priceless gem. And... and Paul even tells Timothy to be strengthened by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ given to you through Him. He expresses it that way. And, and the, re, the way that Paul tells Timothy, I'll just go ahead and give you, because we'll be a long time before we get to 2 Timothy. The way Paul says that gets to Timothy is through Paul's letters. I want you to think about that for a second. It's through the writing of his letters about the Lord Jesus and the commands of the Lord Jesus through his apostle apostolic authority as a messenger, as speaking for Jesus, as if Jesus has given the commands, because he has, that the grace of the Lord Jesus is with us and to us through the writing of his letters so that the New Testament is indeed the breath, very breath of God, as is the Old Testament. Breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3. You never wanted to break dance. That ought to make you want to break dance. Because if anybody ever wanted to touch the divine, there it is. Put it in your head. Put it in your ears. Let it come out of your mouth. But there's three words. Grace, mercy, and peace. Not just grace and peace. Grace, mercy, and peace. Now, there is a sense in which we can define these words through time. Right? We come through time. We can go back to the original idea of gratia. Latin, which means thanks. Did you know that? It means thanks. <laughs> okay? Thankful. And then we can look at the old French, uh, and, and, and I won't go there because my brain will sideline and I won't, I won't stay on task. But we can go through history and we can look. We can see how theologians and historians have used it. And believe it or not, the word grace is predominantly used in what we call secular literature. It's not a Christian term. Okay. It's not a Christian term. And in the Old Testament, there are three or four Hebrew words. In the, in the Greek, though, that's in the Hebrew, in the Greek, there's one. And the word is pronounced hadis. Hadis. C-H-A-R-I-S, if we were to transliterate it. Most of us country folks say charis. <laughs> or charis, if we're from the... North Georgia. Charles. That's what we call, you know, our cousin Charles. Charles. <laughs> but hadith, what does it mean? It means grace. The word grace, it means grace. And there's examples in the Old Testament of God dealing with a people that He is gracious toward. And there's a very, and let me tell you, beloved, I'm going to tell you now, in the use of the term, there's a very myopic, and strict use 
of the term grace in the New Testament. And it is not often easy for us to discern. But there are some people look at the word mercy and they think, well, mercy, isn't that like grace? Absolutely. Isn't it true? Is not grace mercy and mercy grace? Is not in the court of law. What does grace mean? Let's, let's look and see how it would, can be defined in a manner that's congruent with the Scripture. So the New Testament alone, the word grace is used in a way to illustrate showing grace. To show grace. Let your words be gracious. To show grace. The word grace can also mean to be gracious. The word grace can also mean to bestow favor. And that's the one that we're going to focus on this morning. Because that's where when we see the word in the New Testament specifically ascribed to being God's grace, possessive with an apostrophe S, God's grace, it is always showing, or not just showing, bestowing favor. But there's another way. The term grace can really be understood to act freely. To act freely. That's why we say that the gospel is of free grace and sovereign Grace. Grace is gift freely. Unmerited, undeserved, unearned. So in the courts, if someone is a murderer and they are found guilty and they are there now for sentencing and the judge says, well, you know what? I didn't like that guy anyway, so I'm going to put you on probation. You're free to go. That would be grace, right? The man deserved to go to prison or to die, but the judge said, eh. But actually, if the judge did that, it, it, it would be gracious and merciful in the context of our justice system, but it would actually be unjust. It would, lack, it would literally be wicked. Why? Because the crime would not be satisfied. The payment, the law would not be paid. We're in the grace of God. Instead of destroying His people who are guilty of sin as sinners and guilty and deserving of all wrath and destruction forever, eternally, I don't want to be redundant here, God instead says, nope, you're forgiven. How does He do that? Because He bestowed all of His justice on Jesus in their place. So for every person for whom Jesus died, they will not perish, but they will have eternal life. Grace. And mercy. Mercy is an intimate word. Mercy is a word that is part of grace that expresses a desire to truly have intimate Fellowship. Because usually when someone is merciful, it's because they truly care about the object of their mercy. Now I want you to hear this for a second. This is a very friendly letter between someone, between two people who are very intimate. Not only in the faith, but in life and ministry. And even though it is a friendly letter... 
it holds great authority because Paul is an apostle. He didn't have to, he didn't have to undergird his apostolic authority to Timothy. <laughs> you ever think about that? He didn't have to really, he didn't have to really get in there, Timothy, you know I'm an apostle, right? I'm your brother and I'm your friend and we're bros and all, but I'm an apostle, right? No, Timothy didn't have that problem. He didn't, he didn't question whether or not he was above being demanded of by the apostle Paul. He knew the instruction that Paul gave him, whether it be letter or over coffee or whatever, camel juice or whatever they drank back then, uh, that, that, that it was authoritative. But Paul's wanting to ex expressly show something in this letter that I don't think was intentional, but by the Spirit of God it was absolutely purposeful. Is that though Paul is an authority and a head over Timothy, he loves him like a son, like a child. And so the expression of mercy sandwiched between grace and peace is to help Timothy understand the mood of Paul and his love for Timothy and his love for the gospel and his love for the Lord and his love for the Lord's people. Why did Paul care about Timothy? Because Paul cared about the church of Ephesus which was a problematic city. And Paul had been there and just preaching the gospel humbly and quietly and in small circles caused an entire riot. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the scripture says for hours they cheered it on in the center of town. Because they were sick and tired of people hurting their economy because their money was made in the business of idolatry. Just like when you go to a theme park and you get out of the ride in this, your favorite superhero mug and cap, $3 at Walmart, $300 at the park. Uh, and the same thing is true like a sporting event and you get out and you, know, you get to buy the banners and the caps and the little thumbs and the things or whatever, the big hands. When people worshipped in Ephesus, they came out and into the shops of the market and they bought worship items because great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Paul put Timothy, his precious child in the faith, as the elder of elders in that area to appoint men at all the churches to give order and oversee and make sure people learn and obey his teaching according to Christ. That's why this letter is written. Paul, Timothy did not need reminding of his theology. He did not need learning of his theology. He had spent years with Paul. He did not need it. But he did need it, you see. We're never not learning in the faithful of we're not looking for the new. We're not looking for further distinctions. We're not looking for new creative ideas. We're not looking for new ways to become relative. We're learning the same thing over and over again that it may be new today. The mercies of the Lord are new today. So the good report of Jesus Christ is new today. It gives us hope. It gives us peace because it has granted us hope and it has granted us peace and it has granted us mercy by the command of God, our Savior, and our hope 
And we get all of that through the writing of the apostles. And here we are every week gathering together to listen to these things and to be instructed in these things. And I think that we need to pay close attention to that reality that God loves His people. I mean, I read it. I read out of the Old Testament a lot in the beginning of our services in Isaiah and Psalm and Psalms and, and, and others, other prophets. And we see it constantly. We see God standing up and going, you know what? You have defamed me, like He says to the Israelites and through Ezekiel. You have defamed me among the nations. You have ruined your testimony. You have ruined my name. You've destroyed the very fabric of my essence amongst the people. Not that they've done anything to God, but they've ruined His reputation. You've blasphemed. So it's not for your sake that I'm about to act, God says to Ezekiel. But for mine. Now, if we were God and someone defamed our name... We'd just pop them good in the mouth, wouldn't we? We'd make an example out of them. Well, what is the example that God makes out of Israel over and over again? Well, two ways. He brings His loving discipline to them as a whole that He puts them under captivity constantly. But then out of that group of, that are captive, he, he pulls a remnant out. You see the shadow? This is God's grace being understood in His sovereignty over human history. And he says, for my sake I'm about to act so that the world may know that I am God and that those people who hold you captive now and who have seen you fall into blasphemy and defame me, they will see you worship me and they will know that I am your God and you are my people. You cannot escape me. Same thing that Isaiah says in chapter 30 and 33. I will write on your hearts my law. I will show you my righteousness. I will put in you a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone. And over and over again, we see God working with His people. By grace, you have been saved. So when we hear the word grace in our scriptures and in our ears, we need to automatically and certainly think of salvation because that's what it is. By grace, you have been saved through faith, which in and of itself is not your doing but as a gift of God's grace. You see, that's what the flesh does. It always tries to find a way in which we are somehow attached to our success. Even if it's just a little bit, just a little bit of knowledge, just a little bit of smarts, just a little bit of intelligence, just a little bit of action, just a little bit of power, just a little bit of weakness. You know, we can be powerfully humble. <laughs> oh, I just couldn't do a thing. I just sat there and let God do it all. That's not humble. That's self-righteousness. I just let God do it all? Is that what Paul did? Sat around, I just let God make me an apostle. No, he was riding to Damascus to kill the dag-blasted disciples. Can you say dag-blasted? <laughs> I don't even know what it means. The Yosemite Sam taught me that. By grace you've been saved. That little chain of Scripture in Romans 8 that we start in the very beginning of it, but in, in 28 and 29, we, and 28 through 39, those 11 verses, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Let's hear it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
For those who are called according to God's purpose, for those whom He, God, foreknew, He, God, also predestined to be conformed to the image of His own Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom God predestined, God also called. And those whom God called, He also justified. And those whom God justified, He also glorified. Paul asks, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect people? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who was indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're all being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through Him, Jesus Christ, who loved us. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, and the ESV admits principalities, but the, the idea of principalities powers, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is all of grace. God purposed, decreed, planned a salvation for a people. And at the time He appointed, after the counsel of His will, He said three little words. Well, four little words. Let there be light. And there was light. And the light was good. And He started it all. He started it all. The grace of God for His people is His favor toward them unto salvation. And this is the teaching of Paul. God's grace is not a thing. I want you to hear this for a second. God doesn't have pockets. He's got cinnamon candy in this one, licorice in this one, Oh, but what's in this one? It's grace. <laughs> That's not how it works. Grace is intangible. It is not a thing. It does not exist in the world or in the cosmos or in the ether or in God's economy. It is God's favor. It is His attitude. It is His disposition. It is His action. It is His doctrine. It is His teaching. It is His working. It's the manner in which God approaches His people. Grace. Which is so powerful, it is so purposeful, it is so intentional that we've created it as a thing. Just like faith is not a thing. It doesn't exist. It doesn't, you can't say this is faith. It doesn't exist. Y'all, I don't know what to do but break my fingers off. It's just so frustrating. Faith, grace, these are standings. 
We stand in the economy of grace. We're the only currency that operates for the pleasure of God is His work. And anything that He has done, said, decreed, or desired for His people is grace. It's grace. And when you look and you look and you look and you look, and beloved, I have spent... I don't want to exaggerate. I'm just going to say seven months studying every single passage in the entire Bible that relates to God's possessive grace. And it is always in the language salvation for His people. Listen to me. Biblically, Is it gracious? Is it gracious that the sun came up this morning? Absolutely. Is it gracious that the wicked have food? Absolutely. But let's be careful. Let's be careful to make sure that when we come to dissonance, that we resolve those chords in the place where the Bible will keep harmony. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was a very studied man as a Jew. Paul had a resume above resumes with Jew of all Jews. You saw his resume there that he wrote to the church of Philippi. Named Saul. You know, Paul is a transliteration of a Hebrew word. (laughs) Salos. Paul would be the English of the Greek, okay? His name wasn't changed. He just used a Greek name. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was named after the king of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And you see this resume. He knew everything. Zeal, unmeasurable. Insistence on right worship and right theology and right doctrine and right understanding and right living. Oh my goodness. And everybody in here goes, Pharisee, that's exactly right. You see, when anyone in the economy of grace insists on other conditions but grace, they are a Pharisee. We are Pharisees. We have Pharisaical ideology. But what does that mean? We're in a meat suit that's sinful. We're sinners. And we're going to do what we think is best in regard to how other people ought to think, do, and live to the point that we're feeling pretty good about ourselves, but we'll humble brag, well, you know, I'm a sinner too then hush. Until you're Christ. You see? Why are you saying that? Because that's what I say to myself. (laughs) A lot of these admonished, weird things that I just spurt out, that's what I say to myself. I talk to myself, y'all. I'm really fruity. Tippins, until you are Christ, shut up. Until you are God Almighty, Keep your opinion to yourself. (laughs) You see? 
And where is the guideline? We're not talking about that. We're talking about instruction in grace. We're emphasizing grace. We're not de-emphasizing other things. You see the manner in which wickedness is rooted from our toes to the top of our heads? That when someone emphasizes the, the importance of one thing, it's, it automatically we get all hostile and triggered. Oh, you're not emphasizing that. No, because we're not talking about that right now. Thursday, most of us are going to eat some food. Some of us are going to overeat. Some of us are going to undereat. Some of us are going to eat more than our appropriate share of different types of food. We walk into a table and it's spread full of food and there's 12 dishes and 3 different meats and 900 pounds of sugar. And you walk in and go, I want an Oreos. You don't love me because I don't have Oreos. I mean, you know what? What do you do with that guy? Uninvite him. <laughs> you see? But that's what we do when we're emphasizing Christ and His glory and the grace that He gives to His people, why are the antithesis always made the banner? Because that's what Satan does to the mouths of people who don't listen to the Scripture. You see? And I'm the king of that. By the Lord's mercy, He humbles me to the point where <sighs> I don't feel good enough to do anything about it. <laughs> grace. Paul, being extremely intelligent, extremely tall, extremely sound, Sanhedrin, not just a Pharisee, he was of the ruling class. He was a ruler of the rulers of the spiritual rulers. And he's writing to Chloe. Chloe's like, Paul's like, yeah, everything's good in Corinth, Chloe. So great to hear the good report. And she comes back, she said, what report are you reading? Mm-mm. Paul writes back and says, what do you mean? I got this letter from such and such and everything's great. And Chloe writes back and goes, oh man, this was an all night messenger, you know? No, 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 no. Paul's like, just give me a list. I'm the apostle. This isn't gossip. Give me a list. I'm coming down and I'm going to deal with it. Give me a list. So she gives him a list. And then Paul falls out on the floor. Three days later, he comes back. It's a joke about falling out. Could you imagine? Thinking everything's well, and they're going to report. You got incest, you got backbiting, you got gossip, you got slander, you got lying, you got thievery, you got gambling, people suing each other over petty civil differences. The name of Christ is defamed when the church lives like that. And God's discipline comes. How does it come? First and foremost, through the correction of the apostles. That's an act of grace, that's a work of grace. There's a lot of things. We're going to, we're going to talk about all those. Part three or part four of this sermon, I guess. But Paul tells the Corinthians that he's not coming to them in wisdom and none of them are wise. Matter of fact, he calls them infants. He calls them children. He calls them unspiritual because they won't listen to what he has to say. And he's ashamed of them. But he does not hate them and he does not condemn them and he does not call them unbelievers. He does not disturb their intimacy with the Lord Jesus. He builds upon that, you see. He says, by grace you have been saved. Because of that, the foundation of everything that you have and everything that you are and all that you will ever be is built on Christ. So if you don't build on the foundation with the same material, you are going to crumble. Chapter 2. Let's, let's hear it. Chapter 2. Corinthians 
First Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. As a matter of fact, according to historians and the writing of Paul, a lot of people believe that he had a speech problem. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now see, some people think, oh, look, that's just a... Listen, guys. This is the work of an apostle. This is the work of an evangelist. This is the primary undercurrent of the river of the soul and the heart of a pastor to do the work of an evangelist, which includes the current of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, just saying, Jesus died on the cross. Millions of people died on the cross. But only one of them was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. So only one of them actually satisfied God's wrath. Only one of them was raised to life because he himself had no sin. Only one of them secured the salvation and the redemption of His people. Only one of them was an act of grace. Only one of them was a work of grace. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What's that mean? That Paul taught the good report of Christ and answered any question. And God saved His people through the work of Christ. And then God granted His people faith in Corinth when Paul preached the work of Christ. And I was with you in weakness, and I was with you in fear, and I was with you in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. In other words, I didn't make a lot of sense. I rambled. But in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I always find it interesting, through my life, I've talked to pastors of various iterations, and some of them emphasize this idea of tapping into the Spirit's power. Hogwash. God is Spirit. The Spirit is God. We don't tap into Him. He uses us as He wishes. And to approach the power of God is to approach the Word of God. Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the good report of Jesus the Messiah, for it is... The power of God unto salvation. What's the power of God unto salvation? The finished work of Jesus. How does that finished work effectually change the heart and minds of men unto faith? By hearing it. Who does the work? The Spirit of God. When and how? As He wishes, the wind blows. We are nothing but mouths. My speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. How do they know? Because the Scripture or the, taught, the teaching of Christ was given, the, person's, the good report of the person of Christ was given, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now see, I've been learning a long time. And the more I learn, the more ignorant I realize I am. And I think about things a lot. I think deeply about things. I go into side places. I observe, I try to observe every possible thing that could possibly go or go wrong or go right or that I could possibly consider to the point where I hang in the atmosphere many times in my life without any progress. I want you to think about that for a second. And it's debilitating when simply 
resting in the truth of Scripture is sufficient. But the wisdom of men is powerful. Isn't it? It's powerful. But our faith cannot rest in that. Our faith cannot rest in how well your pastor studies. Or how eloquent the teaching may be. Or how precise. Or how technical. Or how philosophical. Beloved, that's what we do. We come up with new ways of thinking about things. That's, that's what we do. That's what our minds do. Don't think about it. I mean, how many years have some of us been using a weed eater, but yet we'll see a hack on Pinterest and go, never thought about that. Look at it works. And then we become the expert weed eater guy. Or a new way of using all that stuff that we won't throw away. Pinterest exists because we're hoarders. And there are a lot of things that I think about and that I believe are spiritually mature that if I taught from this pulpit, it would destroy your lives. For several reasons. One, I could be wrong. And I don't want to be wrong, not because of me, but because of you. I could be crazy in the way I think. So what's the simple answer to that? Just stick to the text. Not the inference, the text. The text was sufficient for the apostles. The text is what they wrote. The text is sufficient for the very first foundational elders of the church. The text was sufficient for the early church. It's sufficient now. But beloved, how many books do I own? And I used to get excited if somebody brought you know, Tertullian up or... or, or, or or, or any of the founding, or the church, early church fathers, or any of these archaeological things. I'm like, this is exciting. Why? Because I'm a history nerd in certain subjects. I love the history of fighting. I love the history of guns. I love the history of doctrine, the history of the church, history of politics. I love sociology. I love anthropology. I love all the crazy, let me be invisible and look at the world and think about how it might be working. But what good is that? It's the wisdom of men. It doesn't matter. And we have whole denominations and whole associations of so-called churches and all they do is they go out and they train men and women for ministry. And this is what you do and this is why you do it. Let's get a vision statement and a purpose statement. Let's get our goals. That's what you're taught. It's what you're taught when you're in business school. It's what you're taught when you're at Harvard. It's what you're taught when you're anywhere. It's what you're taught when you go to the SBA and you want to start a business. Making popsicle sticks. They want to see a cash plan. They want to see a marketing plan. They want to see a to-market plan. You're going to go to an IPO? I want to see it. I want to see it. I want to see all this. Beloved, that's not what the gospel is all about. It's not about a plan. And evangelism is not about a plan. It's not about a strategy that we can do to reach people. It's just about making disciples of one another as we go along under the protection of the Word of God and His Spirit in all power as God has seen fit for us to be. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I came not in wisdom and not in power and very unplausible so that the Spirit would be demonstrating His power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, you see, this is where I was getting, 
among the mature, among those who can handle it. Listen to me, church. Among those who are ready, among those who have the palate, among those who are rested so firmly in the grace of God, what does Paul say? We do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, nor a wisdom of the rulers of this age, because they are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understand this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now think about that. And I have time to really talk about it, but think about it. You can't imagine God's glory. You can't imagine His grace. You can't imagine His gospel. You can explain what is revealed and only what is revealed, not what is imparted in some secret way. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit of God, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God Himself. For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. What is the message here? This is grace. (laughs) We can't, only He can. We can't understand Him, only His Spirit can understand Him. His Spirit gives us stuff freely. You see how that definition of grace? Freely. To act freely. To bestow favor. God bestowing favor. You know the simplest thing that Paul tells the Hebrews is the simplest act of maturity. The the first step of maturity is to listen to the instructions of the Bible. I'm going to say that very plainly once again. The first act and step of maturity is that the Spirit of God gives us the peace to simply do what the Bible tells us to do in all circumstances. Not the theology, the do. Understand that all of this is of grace. Now do these things as the Spirit of God teaches His people. Those who don't do, don't understand. Don't understand what? The authority of Scripture. I didn't say they were lost. You see how silly that is? Don't say that. If they're lost, then all of Corinth was lost, but Chloe. If they're lost, then all of Galatia was lost, except the guy that took the letter. Christ saved them, and the Spirit of God teaches us that is God's grace at work. Grace isn't an inoculation, poof, oh, I got grace, hey, I can see. No, the seeing is an act of grace. The understanding is an act of grace. Faith is a gift of grace. Revelation is how one comes to understand the truth. We understand the thing. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 
The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. And notice he doesn't say make judgment on. It's just having discernment. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. See, this is a gift of grace. This is a work of grace. This is a standing of grace. What is the mind of Christ? Paul tells us in Philippians, this is the mind of Christ that you have, beloved. That though he was in all ways, God at all times, equal in, in every sense, the fullness of deity, he did not take his stance as God something to be made much of, but became a slave, obedient unto death as a criminal, not even guilty, and die. That's the mind of Christ. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is seen in God Himself becoming flesh and dying for His people without a word in His defense. I don't want to die. Somebody might think I'm a sinner. I don't want to die. Somebody might think I'm a murderer. That's just not the right way, Lord. I don't want anybody to think that I'm not spiritual. I don't want anybody to think... Listen, that's the hardest part of life, isn't it? Somebody thinking that you are what you're not in a negative way. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to the suffering of our Lord. He was God and He was treated like a dog. He was even found innocent. And they killed Him anyway because it was fitting for the political environment of the day. Religious political environment. God, thank you for America that the church doesn't run it. Because we'd all be hanged. But our brothers do not address you as spiritual people, Paul says. But as the flesh. Notice what he says. He, he quantifies that. He qualifies that. Infants in the Lord Jesus. Infants in the Messiah. He doesn't say you're not. He says you're babies. You're infants. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food, and now you're not even ready. I go away, and y'all eating Twinkies all the time. For you were still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, the first thing Paul talks about, what does he say? Jealousy. What is that? Not liking that somebody has something you don't. Not liking that somebody is what you're not. Strife. Strife is a broad word that means division and frustration. That's how he knew they were infants, because they were fighting, treating each other with disdain. If God Almighty can put Himself in the earth, in flesh, and not fight for His own glory, so can we. And that's a work of grace. Jealousy and strife among you are not of the, you are not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way. Are you not of the flesh and only believing, behaving in a human way? For one says, well, I follow Paul. And the other says, well, I follow Apollos. One says, well, I believe this. And well, I believe that. And one says, well, I went to seminary. Well, I studied on the street. Well, I know this. Well, I know that. Well, I don't do this. Well, I don't do that. I mean, that's what, that's what we do. Are you not being merely human when you divide like that? Who is, who is Apollos? What is Paul? Slaves through whom you believed. 
as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters amounts to anything. But only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are the same thing. They are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Verse 10, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. He wasn't calling himself skilled in his ability. He's already said he wasn't. He said like. It's a simile. Like a master builder would lay a foundation. If the foundation's not perfect, what happens to the, to the house? It falls apart. It literally falls apart. Like a master builder lays a foundation, so he, as a messenger, a slave of Christ, laid the foundation. And what is the foundation? And someone else then came along and built upon the foundation. Let each one take care how he builds. For no one can lay a foundation other than which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold or silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, it will all become to be seen what it is. That's what it means to be manifest. All your work will be seen exactly for what it is. For the day of destruction will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he receives a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as being saved from a fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Why are we destroying one another? Paul will ask later. For God's temple is set apart and holy. You are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in his age, in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolish with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile, they are useless. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul, listen to this, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or, I'll just say it, Cephas, Kepha, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God. So all this being said, Paul then says, this is how one should regard us, as slaves of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is the foundation of God's grace. He reveals Himself to us, and we learn how He works. So, he tells the Philippian church, it has been granted to you, granted, this is a work of grace, it's been granted to you, it's not been offered to you. It's not been proposed. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So grace then, as Paul is illustrating it to Timothy, so important, and this intimate idea of mercy, which is part of grace, and peace, which comes from grace, means that undeserving sinners get something else. Undeserving sinners, what do we deserve? We deserve death and judgment and wrath and hell and punishment. What do we get? Life and mercy and peace. Grace upon grace upon grace. John 1. So the undeserving sinners, the elect of God, receive obtain love. They obtain the kindness of God. They obtain the mercy of God. They are given the peace of God. Jesus says the peace that the world does not know. 
They are blessed by God, not in a worldly way, but in an eternal and a spiritual way. We obtain the escape, we obtain the escape of judgment, the escape of wrath, the deliverance from judgment. We obtain life eternal. We obtain faith. We are given adoption. We are given assurance. We are given confidence. We are given revelation. We are given knowledge, even though it may be progressive in our lives. We are given understanding. We are given election. We are given predestination. We are given grace. And there's a dozen or so things and terms that I want to talk about, but in the little bit of time that I have left, let's just talk a minute about election and then we'll pick up next week. We are given by the grace of the Lord an understanding of what this means and in this Word, and we'll, we'll talk about these in depth next week. We could go to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and we could see what that looks like in the grace of God that God has chosen a people. And there are four ways in which election is understood in the Scripture. First, and the election of a nation temporally. Israel. And then they weren't necessarily spiritual. Remember? And then the election of Christ Himself. The Scripture calls Jesus Christ the elect of God. Jesus is the true child and the true seed of Abraham. The true promise for the children of God to be adopted by grace. Election, the Scripture talks about those who are set apart for worship. Like Moses, as a slave in the house of God. A servant, not a son, Hebrews, but a slave. Prophets. Kings, priests, Levites to serve, the apostles, then pastors. We can see that in Acts. And then we see God, according to Ephesians 1 and other places, God's election unto glory, unto salvation. God's election unto sanctification, being set apart, a people set apart for God who will be like God in glory at His second coming. And we know that these truths are all of grace. And as God's Word teaches us about election and predestination, these are terms that often become historical and then they start to rub against the very fabric of the Gospel in our culture. But beloved, let us be biblical. Let us be contextual. To be biblical means it comes out of the context of Scripture. Not something derived from a small part, but something that is taught from the whole. Theology is only learned when we are subject to its subject. And so by grace, we are one with Christ in all things. That means everything Christ has is ours. Everything Christ is is promised to us. Everything Christ promised is guaranteed. Everything Christ accomplished is certain. And then everything that we have in front of us in the Word, the prophets are ours. The apostles are ours. The elders are ours. We are each other's. You see the picture of the marriage? You see why it's necessary to have a good foundation of understanding God's redemption and separation of things in the first five chapters of Genesis? 
and to quit looking at relevant world views, but look at the gospel. We are justified by grace. We are born again. We will, we will believe the words of God because God is gracious in all that He does for His people who has granted us eternal life in Jesus Christ. By His blood we have been purchased. and By His mercy we have been given peace. And we'll pick up here again next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the love that You have for us, Lord, for the... Lord, for the distinctions found in Scripture. For the truth found in Your Word. For the assurance and the hope and the instruction that we know that we will not escape because You will guide us to all truth. Lord, let us not be fearful, but let us resolve to trust in You and rest in You. And Father, as we take the table and continue to worship today through song, we thank You, Father, for Your grace upon grace upon grace. And may the weight on this sermon as we finish it next week, Father, be sufficient for our understanding by Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.